Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Hello, friend. Now, do you remember how last time I mentioned there were a few fringe towns in the Promised Land that had yet to be dealt with? Well, let's go ahead and deal with them. Part of my reasoning for holding off the conquest of this handful of cities and towns is to help train up the next generation in Israel. Joshua was a first-generation general whose life I prolonged to a ripe 110 years in order to see things through, but I didn't give his captains the same special treatment in terms of their longevity, and most of them have seen their last days as well. Whereas the generational issue in the past was that the old folk couldn't let go of Egypt, I want to make sure the new generation that's growing up in the Promised Land doesn't take this remarkable place for granted and get lazy. Having gained their home at such great cost, I won't have the teenagers rolling their eyes every time Grandpa tells a story about Joshua and one of their great battles together. The young'uns are going to have a taste of Grandpa's experience. Just a taste, though, if they follow through. Joshua and his forces have completed the lion's share of the work. But there's nothing like getting drafted to make an 18-year-old appreciate peace. There's another layer to this, though. A test, you might say. First of all, the next generation needs to remain faithful to me just as Joshua both showed and urged them to do. Secondly, they need to truly finish the job here and be as thorough with these other towns as Joshua was with Jericho and the other thirty kings he conquered. Otherwise, any lingering Canaanite presence has the potential to seduce Israel into being unfaithful to its covenant with me. The surest way to keep a man from having an affair with his beautiful secretary is for him not to have a secretary, or a woman with her handsome assistants, or any number of scenarios you can come up with. The surest way to prevent Israel from being led astray by the lingering influence of surviving pagan nationals is for there not to be any. The Book of Judges, then. Nice ring to that, isn't there? The book of Judges kicks off with what may not seem to be a big deal to you, but which makes me very happy. You see, the first considered act Israel takes after the death of Joshua is this. They ask me for direction. If my heart had cockles, they'd have been warmed. Of course, Moses and Joshua did this all the time, turning to me for guidance. But this is the first foray of Israel as a nation at large without a pegged leader. So this is exactly the start I was hoping for. They see me as their leader and ask me what to do next. It's good to be the king. And it's good for the kids to get that I'm the king, if only for a moment. And so the very first sentence in the book of Judges is, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked Yahweh, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Brilliant. I tell the tribe of Judah, and that will naturally be tracking along the first chapter of Judges if you'd like to follow along in Tom. 
So I tell the tribe of Judah to head up the southern tribes in their campaign to finish the Canaanites in the south. Judah, Simeon, et al. do an admirable job by most definitions, defeating nearly every enemy they meet. However, nearly is as thorough as almost or even some when one is looking for all or every. They just couldn't manage to finish the job on a couple scrappy holdout groups, which is going to come back and bite them in the haunches here in a little bit. In a similar story in the north, where the tribes of the sons of Joseph, uh, that would be Ephraim and Manasseh, they fully capture Bethel, but then leave entire villages untouched, deciding instead to turn the people who live there into their own forced labor units. Guess who's already forgotten what it was like to be a slave in Egypt? And that's not even the important part. The important part is they didn't do what I commanded. The problem here isn't military. The problem here is faith and lack thereof. I've already told Israel on multiple occasions that I am giving them this land. All of it. And in case the younger generation's forgotten, I tell them again as we set in motion this new and what's supposed to be the final campaign that I've given the land into their hands. Then I scold them, or rather another angel of Yahweh scolds them for their half-hearted efforts, leaving the local rivals' altars untouched, thus setting future traps for themselves. The issue here is simple. These guys stop fighting too early. What they need to do is keep going and keep obeying until what I've told them is going to happen is fulfilled, but they give up too soon. Sure, they fight valiantly at the beginning, especially in the South, but they don't persevere when things have gone on a while. They let a little fatigue and discouragement from the drawn-out process override my promises and instructions, and they falter. In short, their destiny now turns on how they feel more than on what I have said. With that last sentence, it's time for another life check, as you can guess. Your destiny, the destiny of your neighbor, your enemy, the destiny of all human life is dependent not on what mood anyone happens to be in on any given day. That's far too dependent on your sugar and caffeine intake to be a reliable guide, friend. The destiny of all life hangs not in the balance of fickle human emotion, but rather in the surety of what I have said, in how I have promised that things shall be. Now, I realize we're still in highly theoretical territory in our journey with you, basically still getting foundational background information at this point, However, there's an important principle here you can either put to use immediately or tuck away for later on the way. You may not feel like I've said anything straight at you yet in your life. I guarantee that's going to change if you keep listening. But for now, you can just listen. If, though, you're someone who knows I've made promises to you, then hear this well, friend. My promises are to be trusted more than your feelings. When you feel like giving up, go ahead and cry out to me. Heap your complaints upon me about how difficult things are. 
Ask me to send help, send reinforcements, send the cavalry. Just don't give up. Because if you give up on one of my promises, like these twelve tribes are doing here, giving up on me, I am here to tell you, I am the last being in the universe you should give up on. Whatever it is you're going after in your life that is so worthwhile I've told you to do it, it's going to take longer to get to than you want it to take, than you feel it should take. You know, you're even worse than the Israelites in that capacity. These kids wanted their battles to be tidy and over in a couple of weeks so they could head home and start figuring out how to plant wheat in a straight line. But their habitat has got nothing on yours in terms of wanting things now. I blame the microwave oven largely for this sentiment in your habitat, or just technology in general. But let's not go there for now, other than to say, hang in there, keep after it, and go ahead and suffer the terrible inconvenience of having to wait for something for a change. If you've gotten nothing from this journey to this point but this, at the very least, hang on to the truth that I will keep my every promise at just the right time, though it may feel delayed to you at the moment. Don't settle for partial victory because you're tired, friend. Take a nap and then press on. Israel, though, settles for partial victory. They stop fighting. The dust settles from the battles, the soldiers of Israel return to their respective tribe settlement area, and life in the Promised Land settles into what will be the new normal. And there are still Canaanites there, living beside the Israelites. Sure, Israel is in a position of strength and power over most of them now, but guess what? Remember how, when they were back in Egypt, Hebrews kept hoping that Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, would hear their cries and rescue them? And then I did? Well, guess who the Canaanites are hoping will hear them now that their tables have turned? They're not crying out to me, I can tell you that. The Canaanites actually have several options on their God menu, not unlike Egypt did not too long ago. However, the main local Canaanite deity is a fellow by the name of Baal. I'm the only me, creator and ruler of all specialist in every speciality, so this Baal is a far lesser departmental god. Baal is in charge of fertility and things associated with it, and if you're looking for fertile crops, you need your rainfall at the right time, and you've got to keep the hail away at harvest time so this Baal supposedly got the land and weather departments under his belt. Also under his belt is a large phallus, because he's supposed to be in charge of sexual fertility as well, whether with humans in the bedroom or bulls in the barnyard. And, by the way, he's got a female counterpart by the name of Ashtoreth, who's supposed to hold up the feminine side of it all. So here's the nation of Israel freshly placed in this land that bountifully produces livestock and crops, milk and honey. The Hebrews have long been herders, so handling livestock is pretty much a no-brainer for these guys. However, the farming thing is a whole new ball of tallow. The Canaanites, however, have been farming for ages and have got it figured out quite well. 
Of course, they attribute their agricultural proficiency to the prowess of their fertility gods, Baal and his consort, Ashtoreth, who, of course, don't exist, and thus are not going to show up at any point on anything but a hypothetical level. In contrast to my intervention, rescue in Egypt, and, well, the whole story so far. The Canaanites succeed in their farming because they follow the rhythm of land and season in their planting and harvesting, following the cadence of how I created things to work. I am the master farmer here. Well, I am the master everything. But when it comes to the questions of whether Israel will succeed in its new cultivating role, they sure don't need to be checking in with Baal or his consort in order to make sure their first crop succeeds. But they do turn to the locals for help. The local gods, that is. Now, I really do hate to be an I told you so, but it's pretty much an occupational hazard when you're never wrong. You see, because Israel didn't completely remove the Canaanite influence like I told them to when they moved in, it was pretty much only a matter of time before they started hedging their bets and began to worship both me and the neighborhood farming lord. By the way, the word Baal simply means lord, lowercase l, just when you thought it was a sheep speech impediment. My children worship the local just in case Baal has an inside track on local fertility to which I am somehow not privy. There's too much writing on this for me to really lay into my duplicitous children for wasting pretty much no time at all before whoring around with the local deity pantheon. Sure, I let them suffer a little plundering at the hand of their enemies all round, but I reel that in before too long and appoint a ruler to lead some sense into them, a judge. Hence the book of Judges. Of course, the pattern that's already emerged continues to a large extent. Somehow, Israel just can't get rid of its short-term memory loss. They want out of Egypt. I get them out. Then they want to go back because they don't like desert life and prefer slavery. I give them water in the desert, and manna, and quail, yet they still think they're going to die of thirst and starvation. I even enter into a covenant with them that requires me to take care of them and give them lives of abundance. But they forget those things, especially their part of the covenant contract. And like a child that keeps playing with fire, no matter how many times they're warned to keep away from it, they keep picking up the matches as soon as the judge I've sent isn't watching them any longer. We'll talk more about the judges next time, but in the meantime, think about how much you operate based on your feelings instead of my promises, and how you sometimes hedge your bets with the local gods instead of me. I am with you on the way, friend, whether it feels like it or not. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 
15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherarts.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.